exciting, Jim. But not as we know it. This is big. It is 6 minutes past 11pm on Tuesday the 22nd of March 2022 and you are listening to The Bashcast. Coming up in this evening's Bashcast, Neil Channing writes a superb blog about restrictions and a once in a generation chance to get things right. We do not lose golf playoffs but what percentile are we running so hot on them we discuss how to quantify the risk of a player not starting in goal scoring shots and target bets jason trust ceo of smarkets joins us on the bashcast to discuss a heap of smarkets related topics and we finish with the news that smarkets and bookie bashing both experienced cheltenham day one downtime all of that and more coming up on the Bashcast this evening. It's like you're my mirror, whoa. Mirror staring back at me, whoa, couldn't get any bigger, whoa. It's a good song, that. I've got that stuck in my head. I've had that stuck in my head all day. He knows what he's doing, Justin Timberlake. I won't hear anything against him either. There's a couple of crackers in there. I've been going through the Justin Timberlake discography with the kids on the car run recently. So you've got cracker after cracker. You've got um, Crimea River. Which is solid. You've got what goes around comes around, which is solid. You've got mirrors, which is solid. But then on this, mo- literally this morning, it's late at night right now. This is just one minute past ten p.m. Um, I've had the I've had the five-a-side football, so it's a late bashcast tonight. The mindless wanderers are back again after a hiatus of the best part of a decade. We'll get, but um. Yeah, I'm playing some Justin Timberlake to the kids. And on rotation comes Justin Timberlake and um, who are they called? The Lonely the lonely Island? It's not the Lonely Planet, is it? Lonely Island. Um, dick in a Box. It's my Dick in a Box. And um, my kids are... Well, I dropped my boy off, who's three. But I hadn't dro- dropped Sasha off, who is six. And she can she loves reading and it comes up on the car on the display in the car what the song is and she bursts into laughter and then I because I, I, I was humming away not knowing where we were going because I hadn't put two and two together because I thought we were safe in Justin Timberlake land <laughs> Timberland Lake and um, yeah and then a big conversation I like I'm, you know prohibition just doesn't work it doesn't work with gambling it doesn't work with the drugs it doesn't work with alcohol and so I'm very much an advocate of look the kids are aware. It's a little bit unfair on the kids, to be fair. 
It's because, like, we say to them, there's a bunch of swear words out there. You're not allowed to say them. I'm not going to tell you what they are. But if you happen to stumble across one of them, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. Doesn't feel fair as a set of rules to play the game by, does it? You know, if, if I was six, I'd be like, I'm sorry, what? Say that again. Say that again. I'm learning language. I'm picking language up from around me. And what you're telling me is that there is a Venn diagram of acceptable words and unacceptable words. You won't tell me what fits into each category, but I'll be in trouble if I stumble across one of the bad ones. What kind of a game is this? <laughs> so with my daughter, I'm, I'm very much like, you know, let's not tiptoe around the prohibition and let's uh, be accurate. Um, people swear. Adults swear. Children swear. I don't want to hear any child swear. But I know that you can go and swear amongst your friends and giggle about it because it's funny. And only is it funny putting a well-timed swear word irregularly and infrequently into a sentence is fucking funny. It's not so funny when you swear in every sentence because it loses its power and its impetus. But you drop one in every now and again infrequently, and there's a lot of power behind that. And there's no point telling kids you can't swear. So in my view, I might as well just tell them you can go and swear with each other. Just make sh And she said, I'm going to go and tell my friend about Winky in a box. But what it's really called. And so that's fine, but make sure the teacher's not in the room at the same time. Um, I hope your Cheltenham was good. I actually genuinely don't know how my Cheltenham went. I did mean to catch up on it. I actually got back from football and started typing up all the notes. And we've got so many outstanding bets. To... Nobody ever bloody types them up apart from me. <laughs> so here I am filtering by March. And there are just, there's like 100 outstanding bets, which means I've literally no idea. Lucky 15's galore. And I, I couldn't tell you how we've done on them. I'm going to filter by some of the big ones, though, because that's more fun, isn't it? We seem to have done relatively well on um, for Barnes, DDHH, or Cam Smith and the players. Ah, oh, Cam Smith and the players was good. Looked like he was going to throw it away. 33 to 1, big stakes in him. We've got Tony, DDHH. He got the DDHH as well. That was good. That was Saturday. I was down in London for that. Um, Cheltenham Global Citizen. Um, won it 30, th well, 33 to 1. I thought it went off higher. Um, we have Brem, Ryan Brem in the Puerto Rico. Did you hear about Brem? Is it Ryan Brem? Whoever Brem is. I was reading about him. Um, he took time off golf to look after his mother who had terminal cancer and therefore he'd lost all his points. And sadly, his mother passed away. And on the Puerto Rico, uh, he needed to come first or outright second without tying in order to maintain his card, his PGA card. He had his wife in his bag and he had no money and he wins the event by like four shots. Just incredible. Absolutely amazing. And he was um, 60 to 1 when we got on him. So it's been a really decent month. In terms of Cheltenham, couldn't tell you. I might end up being down. On personal bets, I don't really have access to soft bookmakers, and I don't believe there's an edge. 
the same kind of edge that I think that there is on the exchange um, with golf, where I believe that the track was highlighting plus EV bets. I don't think that's necessarily the case of horses. It's a slightly different environment. However, I, it doesn't stop me having the odd interest bet in every single race because I want to know what's going on. I mean, I'm on the lucky 15s. I'm on the shops. I don't have any soft books. Um, so it's not. I'm not hugely excited by Cheltenham. It's just like another day. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's no different to any other day. But there's a little bit more value. But actually also the fact that almost every horse in a race can be valued, it's just annoying because it's like how do you perm up the multiples for that? So um, I did have interest bets on the exchange. I'm not saying this from a here I am with a massive edge. I'm saying this from a I just wanted to keep an eye. It's a lot easier to keep an eye on how markets behave and who wins the horse races and everything like that. Started off really well, got thumped, uh, but then got the winner in the last on the Friday, the 5.30. I got Banbridge at 12 to 1. And even though that I ended up down, I wasn't that much down. But getting the winner in the last made me feel like it was great and I wanted to go, go next year. <laughs> go again next year. Not go. God, no. I've done that before. Not making that mistake again. It's horrendous. Um, so literally, I couldn't tell you how I'm doing on Cheltenham. Um, um, I th- I think I'm up. I don't think it's loads. I didn't see any huge lucky 15s. There was a couple of lucky 15s that started well with like 33 to 1 winners and the next one places and then it just petered out from there. There's an excellent blog, by the way, that people need to go and read um, over uh, at Betting Emporium by Neil Channing. It's really good. It's it's really good because it 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 serves a purpose. It's very long, and so I'm not going to read it out. But if you go to bettingemporium.com, on the front page, you'll see links to various gambling review articles. And this one was from the 22nd of March, 2022. And why this is so good is is it because... Is it is it is because it is written in a way that if anybody is involved in the gambling review reads this, they'll understand that there is a bigger picture... That does seem to be out of control. It's really maybe nobody's fault that it's happened, but it's something that can be fixed with a little bit of forethought if we action now. And the particular phrase he says is this is a once in a generational opportunity. And it is because gambling reviews don't really come around other than once every generation. And he does talk uh, about how we got here a lot the last 20 years, how things changed with Betfair and so on and so on. And I'm going to skip that for reasons of trying to keep this a little bit succinct. But the important points he says, I'm just going to read this. This is sort of past halfway down. He says, clearly the betting firms have very good information about their customers now. And I'll talk about that more in a future article. But in the same way as I believe they easily have enough information already to detect problem gamblers, I do think they also have enough information to detect those who will become long-term winners. And I don't really see a problem in those people being restricted. I have no problem with restrictions applied to those who abuse bonuses, arbitrage players, match betters, line trackers, and those attempting to play on palpable errors. I couldn't agree more. There is no, there's no possible ecosystem where allowing those people to flourish means that the industry can, well, survive is a strong word, but be anywhere else than it is just now is probably 
the the default result of allowing those people to you sort of take as much money out of the industry as they currently are doing he says that these people should be instantly closed if you're attempting to play on palpable errors even if the bet is voided um the following is a list of things where i think restrictions have gone too far automatic factoring that is reducing stakes on all markets to a percentage of the normal stake allowed. In cases where someone simply beats the price regularly due to skill and not because they are they follow a popular tipster or are part of a team of punters betting the same selection. I, I, I agree with this. I think horse racing is a really weird one because how can you possibly beat horse racing unless you have connections? Um, people who have connections generally are very good tipsters. People who follow those tipsters generally make money. But what what can you possibly do that the racing and trading teams at the bookmakers can't do as well as you? But I think I have to pause the bashcast here just to change the garage band software and extend the time. One second. Oh, I think it's done it itself. Didn't need to do anything. Okay. Um but like football, I think there's a chance. There's always a chance that you can look at Either a way of determining XG yourself or how you get onto the secondary markets from those XG or the player props or something. There's something there where I think that it's more fair game. Um, secondary sports, rugby, curling, you know. There are ways that you can have information or work out information or use information that could maybe have a chance against the bookmaker. Horse racing is the only one where I figure that you need connections to be able to win um where people are, this is the second one um where restrictions have gone too far where people are restricted to an amount that is way under a reasonable stake offering people less than a pound is just ridiculous and brings the industry into disrepute obviously algorithms can be set to make the minimum stake a round amount and people will get a five or a tenner and never four pound seventy two or nine pound twenty three i mean this is this thing about Skybet and Bet365. I mean, Skybet, um, my minimum bet is now so low, it's below the minimum bet that they will accept. And yet, I, I, in various audit spreadsheets, I will be a customer or a an account. But it is really pointless. It's the same as Bet365. It's like, might as well just close it. I don't have a sports bet there. I mean, I know I can get 4p on, but the min bet's 5p. Uh, restricting people who play in a st on an established market where the bookmaker has clearly taken a view and gone top price as an opinion seems unfair. If you choose to offer the best price for the favourite of the derby and it wins, then factoring the people that took that price just seems like sour grapes. Especially, there is no future, surely, in just restricting people who are price sensitive. Um, I mean, I understand... If you're Tesco's and people only come in to take advantage of your meal deal and never buy anything else, they are unprofitable customers. But standing at the door and banning every single person that does it doesn't seem to be very long term because people are just going to end up making their sandwiches at home. Not allowing people to repeat bet after a reasonable period of time seems wrong. Um, uh, yeah, um, whatever. Kind of, I don't really pose an opinion on re repeat betting um factoring people after just one or two bets this is normally done when the customer is suspected of betting for someone else but it can often happen just because the first bets are larger than average win singles which seems ridiculous i agree i 100 percent agree with that i mean you know 
disheartening and un- un- unnecessary as well. The, uh, there's a better future than just doing that. Uh, setting the maximum stake on a market to a certain amount and then never moving it brings way more people into the world of restrictions. Of course, in January, the Derby is a weak ma- market where inside information is key, but on the day with an hour to go, the limits on it should be much higher. This could happen in all events. 100% agree. 100% agree with that. Okay, so I can't bet on I can't bet on this thing to happen a week in advance. I can't bet on Kane to score first because I'm working on my goal scorer model, or I can't bet on the winner of... Um, the Valspar at nine places, but with an hour to go, you know what your book is, you know what your liabilities are. I think at that point you could let me on. I think the algorithms could let the shops have a bet at that point. Choosing to restrict people on all of their business. Some people may have been restricted as they are extremely good at beating the market early in horse racing, and maybe they should be restricted for that. I, I mean, this is a weird one. I mean, I'm sure Neil beats the market early. But I, I, I'm of an opinion of with him that I don't understand how not restricting people that beat the market early on horse racing can work. I mean, I hope it can. I just don't know how it would. But he says, there's no reason to restrict these people on a golf major, Wimbledon, football on a Saturday, especially in the bigger leagues or NFL on a Sunday. That's an interesting one. I've always found myself, I love NFL, but my favourite thing about NFL isn't the spreads or handicap betting or anything. It's um, player props. I want to bet on Mahomes um, to pass under 262.5 yards. And I can't get a penny on player props anywhere. And I've always thought, why won't the bookies take money off me for player props? Because I, I have no skill. I mean, I've got, okay. I, I have a benchmarking source online, which, if you call that a skill, but most of them don't even know that I have that, right? Because I can't get a penny on with them. They've restricted me because I've beaten different markets. So that I can't get a penny on with NFL. And they don't know whether I can even beat the market on NFL or not. So Many people looking at this list will just say that the companies are doing the best for their shareholders. And this is very true. If I was a shareholder of a company, I would want them to be doing this. But would I want them to be doing this? Because I think the bigger picture thing here is that they've done it so badly they're chasing people away. Had they done it less severely, there would actually probably be more recreational money in the in the pot. They've, if you go too far and you chase everyone away, you end up making less money overall. And that's where we are just now. So people could say it's up to them to decide who they want as clients and why they should care about people who are caught in the crossfire of restrictions if it stops the 1% from potentially destroying the businesses. However, Neil says, I do think we've spent too much time in this gambling review talking about a tiny percentage of people who are problem gamblers and not really discussed a wide range of important topics. If this legislation and the review were truly a once in a generation chance to reshape the industry and we do not talk about restrictions, then the review has been a failure. It's definitely possible to argue that the corporations are not interested in customers where they have to work for their money a little, who can have winning runs and who maybe only lose 3% a year instead of 8% a year and who definitely require more time and some care from staff to manage. There is a knock-on effect in making that decision though and that is that the corporations needing to take the profits are needing to take the profits from elsewhere and often that means 
the money coming from those losing much larger percentages, which is perhaps why they have got themselves into such a mess over PG and why PG problem gambling and why we are now having to talk about it so much. A review that doesn't even consider these issues isn't much of a review at all. Let's all write to our MPs. I 100% agree with this. Um, he makes the point essentially that there can be a better future. This is all intertwined. And actually, the bookmakers are ending up costing themselves money here by restricting way too far. I mean, I've given up, as I've said. I only bet on exchanges and shops. But I, that's only because I've given up. <laughs> it didn't need to get to the point where I've given up. Do you know what I mean? So go and have a read of that full blog. I've only covered less than half of it there. But it's fascinating. It's really, really, really interesting. Talking about... And betting on shops and exchanges and not at the softy wafties. What did we have? We had a couple of weeks where we didn't pick a winner. That was weird. But 2022 has been um, going mad. Um, hello to um, Edge Alerter. Or Edge Alert. I can't remember what they're called. Who are an Australian service. I don't have access to Australian books, but I do get their emails from them because I'm just interested. And they say that um, they are plus 51% recently in their last few bets this year. And uh, in their opinion, that makes them the number one golf tipping service in the world. 95% over here. Um, it's nearly double. Um, it's going crazy this year. But other things are continuing to go crazy. In the last week, Steam City Championship had um, Jotjum B. Hansen place. Um, oh, do you know what? I've got my numbers wrong there. That's a place dead heat, one at one divided by three. I'll just do this live on the Basscast. Why don't you? I only had him in um, six places. One divided by three. Okay, let's put it up there. Um, sorry, two divided by three. It just like knocks a fiver off. Um, he came, yeah, tied fifth with two other people. We put him up at six places at Unibet. Um, and that was it from that tournament. But over in the Valspar, Sam Burns, William Hill, eight places. 25 to 1. He won last year, so he wants to go back to back. Casey did it. He's quite a talent, this kid. Um, and he, he's... David Riley, who was 1 billion to 1, um, was actually winning on the last day. And then he had a double or a treble somewhere. Um, Sam Burns takes the lead. Xander Schaufele and Webb Simpson, 22 to 1 and 50 to 1, both doing really well it's so annoying when they're doing really well and then they just trip 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 and fall out of the places but we deserve this we'd be the thing is it's not like things have been going badly in previous weeks i just hadn't been making any money is that a weird thing to say but get this the my golf life open right which is in south africa i had um eight people up from that the shortest price is 40 to one I'm only covering 10% of the field. I had seven losses and one dead heat place, one to third. So you could say, well, that's really rubbish. But I took six of those guys. 
and I put them in a DraftKings tournament, and it was a stupid one. I mean, I put them in a few DraftKings tournaments, and it was beautiful because they all did really well because they scored relatively highly to everyone else. But this DraftKings tournament was like, um, how much was it? It was $10, £7.20 to enter. And top prize is $5,000. And I think I ended up coming, I was in first with like three holes to go, and I ended up coming second. or th- I can't remember if it was second or third, but I didn't win. But that just goes to show you, it was exactly the same golfers. And what happened is that they all made the cut. Every single one of them made the cut. And then they all finished between, like, well, tied 7th and 20th. Or tied 7th and 15th. I mean, they just bunched up there. Which means that none of them placed for me, but they were all just outside of the places. So if we just repeat that tournament 100 times... Sometimes, a lot of the time, one of those guys is going to win. A lot of the time, they're going to place. Multiple ones are going to place. So it's not. It, it's fine that that ended up being a loss. I mean, that was like, yeah, like minus fifty percent or something like that. But it was the, the result was absolutely fine. So going back to the PGA, Sam Burns and David Riley end up um, going into a playoff. And Sam Burns wins it. And that puts us at an all-time high. And golf is just lovely. And uh, we're probably the number one. <laughs> There's probably someone else out there doing better than this. I would never facetiously want to say that we were the number one in the world with no evidence of it. In fact, I actually had someone come to Facebook and say, am I only making this amount of money? He knows plenty of people making more. And good for him. Well done. Well done you. Um, I'm very happy for you. If uh, you're making loads of money and I've no idea how or why or, you know, you're not putting results up transparently or even telling me where they're coming from. But, yeah, he was having a real go at me, that guy. He was getting a bit, he said, what did he say? I've got an email list of 17,000 people and I wouldn't recommend you to a single one of them. All right. All right. (laughs) Fair enough. Talk about the playoffs. And by the way, he'd never signed up for bookie bashing. And his start, I looked up his name. He, ne- he And he said he'd never signed up. And he didn't know anything about us. And when I was pointing him in the direction of independent proofing, he was like, I've never heard of those guys. So he was like, he was just fingers in his ears, not interested in any kind of conversation. So I was like, why well, wasn't wasting my time for him? I was interested after Sam Burns, of course. My buddy was on Sam Burns as well. My buddy, by the way, is like a one pound each way. Um, Staker, but he loves his golf. He was on Sam Burns as well. And he said, oh my God, we're going into a playoff. I said, don't you worry about that, mate. We do not lose playoffs historically. And we won it quite comfortably. And it made me want to go back and actually have a look at what the exact playoff record is. And so here it is. Are you ready for this? Um, I've been on 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 golf tournaments where I've been in a playoff, right? Out of, um, how many, how many tournaments in total? Out of 202 tournaments, I've been in 11 playoffs, right? And I've won 10 of them. Now, that 
seems to be statistically unlikely. <laughs> that actually seems to be quite an extreme amount of run good. They were the BMW International Sanderson Farm Championship Shriners for Children Open. Now get this, Shriners for Children Open the previous year, I had was in a playoff, but I had both of them, Martin Led and Martin Matthew Wolf. Um, the Austria Open 2021, but I had both of them. So I don't know how we're going to factor this in because, well, it's not lucky to win a playoff when you have both people in the playoff. Um, and the Memorial Tournament 2021, the Rocket Mortgage Classic, WGC, FedEx, Farms Insurance 2022, Waste Management, and the Valspar Championship. The only time I've lost one was the Rocket Mortgage Classic 2021 with Joaquin Neiman. But um, yeah, um, it's actually really seven tournaments that are lucky because there's two that I had two of them in. One of them I had three of them in. No, one of them I had two and the, the, there were three players in the playoff and I had two of them, right? So it's, that's all of that is ridiculous. It really is. So I've run a Monte Carlo analysis just to see how well we're running. What I want to know is really essentially how many times out of seven do I have six or more when it's a 50-50 shot. And it's not always a 50-50 shot, but that just makes it easy to work out. And one of them was a two-thirds shot, right? That's what I want to know. Um, and the answer is 7.63%. Uh, so I'm running at 93% hotness, whatever. I can't control that. What can I do? I mean, honestly, I've got a really good ROI without that. but with So I don't know what to say to you. I mean, what can I do? I'm just winning all the playoffs. Actually, it's skill. I just choose people that are really good at uh, playoffs. So I'm continuing on and on and upwards with the player XG stuff had a conversation tonight, a very interesting conversation with a man um, called Jivan Jirathran. Sorry if I've got that wrong. Who is a senior odds compiler for Abelson or Abelson Odds, um, who provide many of the majors with goal scorer prices and settlement via their GPS service. It was interesting for him to say, how much uh, you have to factor in expected player time, which is something I've been working on a lot. I was asking about how much work they put into modeling the substitutes, right? Um, and he says they they don't actually model the XG that much in substitutes because it's factored into the edge from the bookmaker. So the bookmaker and exchange rules state that if a player starts the game, then player goal scorer and shot bets are live. And if a player starts as a substitute, then any time goal scorer, last goal scorer, shots on target bets. Well, they are still live. Um, and I, th I suspect that bookmakers are guilty of exploiting punters using this rule because let's say um, Chris Wood has a niggly injury, Betfred, well, and, and no one knows if he's going to start or not. And there's a bit of uncertainty. Maybe he's 50-50 to start. Maybe he's going to come on at halftime. What I think a Betfred will do is they'll boost him in the knowledge that they have a tangible edge based on the fact that he might not start, right? So they actually, I think, a lot of them seek out these uncertain starting players, uh, which is rude. 
It really is. It's rude. Um, and if a player comes on as a sub um, and it's nil-nil, his first goal scorer bets are live if the market is still open, meaning if it's still nil-nil, or if the only goal in the game has been an Oggy, and if it has, good luck if you're on the old Oggy NGS um, edge. Team news occurs one hour before kickoff. Therefore, when we bet before team news, there is a risk that the player does not start, and that has a tangible effect on our the value of our player bets. And somebody asked me to discuss this. Somebody got in touch to say, can I discuss it? And I'm very happy to, because it's a risk that's in my head that I'm aware of. But if you're not fully aware of how to estimate it and calculate it, then it can be annoying when betting on it long term and then you get a little bit stung when perhaps you put some money on this guy at evens and he comes on in the 92nd minute for 14 seconds and your EV was 0.001%. So we can assign a subjective probability to the chances of any player starting. Now, however we do this, it will be guesswork because only a handful of people will know the lineup ahead of Team News. And even then... That lineup will be subject to change and warm-up injury and all host of uncertain things. So we can get expected lineups from a number of different sources, such as whoscored.com, 442 Magazine, Rotowire, FancyFootballsCount.co.uk, etc. And before team news, the probability of a player starting will have an effect on the XG of that player. So if a player doesn't start and takes no part of the game, then the EV Calculation is inconsequential, all bets are void, and we neither win or lose EV. But if the player does take a part of the game, one of two things have happened. He's either in the starting lineup or he's on the substitute bench. So let's look at those two things. So let's assume he's on the substitute bench. Now, let's assume we've also done a basic calculation for the player XG in the game. And this could be something in the region of Newcastle United have an XG of 1.2 and... um, 40% of Newcastle's goals are going to be scored by Chris Wood, and therefore Chris Wood has an XG of 0.3, right? And in that, we've maybe estimated that Chris Wood's just going to play the full 90 minutes, right? So all of that comes into our player XG. So he's going to play 90 minutes. Uh, His player XG is 0.4 because he gets... 30% of Newcastle's goals and they're getting 1.2. So all of that information we know up front, right? So from that, we can do an XG per minute. So he's got about 0.005 goals per minute. Now, we can be a little bit more clever because we actually know there there are a certain percentage of goals scored in the 0 to 1st minute and there's a certain percentage of goals scored in the 89th to 90th minute. We have all that data in bookiebashing.net and sports strategies. We you can download it so we don't need to go and research that we've looked at hundreds of thousands of games and you could even do it yourself and sort of just do it for the premiership and just do it for the championship if necessary we didn't see a reason to do that split it by league um but i'm just keeping it simple now so just now i've just uniform xg per minute 0.05 or 0.005 um now based on a player xg of 0.5 simple plus on over zero, AGS at 2.5. And from there we can do two plus goals, three plus goals, each half, 42nd to 48th minute, whatever. Right, that's very easy. We've got loads of stats coming out from the player starting. Now let's assume 
that very same player starts on the substitute bench. Now we can similarly estimate their expected player time. Um, with the XG per minute, that that we worked out in the previous example now becomes very useful when those players are subs. All we have to do is assume how many minutes he's going to be on the pitch for. So everything in player XG is coming down to how many minutes the player is playing. Um, now we've got that 0.005 for Chris Wood. Let's say for for you know what for, we have to somehow come up with a figure for when he's going to come on the pitch. It might be looking at historical matches. It might be the way that the manager rotates the team and everything like that. But let's just say we think he's going to come on with 22.5 minutes to play. Well, we know that he's getting 0.005 goals per game. So now, even though we started with an XG of 0.4 or whatever it was, now our XG is down at like 0.1. Okay? So... That's the calculation that we've made. We've gone from the percentage of goals he gets for Newcastle, the XG of Newcastle to get the player XG, then goals per minute, and then we've used that goals per minute with an expected time that he's going to come onto the pitch if he's a substitute for a new player XG. We now have two player XGs. We have one player XG for if he starts, and we have a different lower player XG if he's on the substitute bench, right? So there we go. That's two player XGs that we have. What can we do now? Well, we can take both of those player XGs and we add in one more variable. And that variable is what is the probability of Chris Wood starting the game? Okay, let's just say it's 90%. Now that's everything that I need to know. I can now work out the fair odds of him scoring a goal before team news. That equation um, relies on me working out the expected minutes he's going to play in the game, which is going to be the probability of him starting the game multiplied by the estimated number of minutes he'll play if he starts the game, plus, follow me here, the probability of him being on the bench multiplied by the number of minutes we expect him to play if he starts on the bench. Put all of that together, we get his expected minutes in the game before team news has been announced. Go back to what we already had. We had an XG per minute. And so because we know we're going to expect him to play 86.85 minutes on average, and that encapsulates both him being on the bench and him starting, that means our, our overall player XG would be like 0.38 or whatever. You know, it's a, it's a very simple calculation. It's the XG per minute multiplied by his expected minutes in the game. Now, we could, honestly, it's very easy to just add in that bit of enhancement where we would say, okay, now let's make the XG per minute variable depending on the time of the game. It's not that difficult to do, but I haven't done it in my example. But they that, that those are essentially the variables and the components that come into play. And that is why when you look at the exchange before team news, the price might be a little bit wobbly because different people have different viewpoint about the probability of the player starting and the expected minutes he'll play when he's on the pitch. That isn't determined at the bookmaker. They just offer the assumption that the player's going to start. And then they get to eat lots of money when the player doesn't start and he comes on. We can mitigate the risk of a player not starting 
by only betting after team news, only betting on players with a very high certainty of being in the starting lineup, but will still be stung sooner or later. Comparing the price of a player at the bookmaker to the exchange, I mean, this is a very easy thing to do because if there's a wide discrepancy between the two prices, then we can be confident that the exchange price includes a risk factor for the expected player time of that player. And for a player that has a non-zero chance of starting on the bench, and by the way, almost all players do, we can estimate the XG per minute and expected playing minutes in the game to calculate the player's ATS price, and such a calculation will be subjective, and a wide range of prices should be expected to be obtainable trading on the exchange, but we need to factor all of this in. So it's really just being aware of it. I mean, the very simple, if, if we boil down to this and remove the mathematics, it's like one, bother to work it out, two, only bet after team news, or three, understand and accept that it's a risk, and just eat the risk because you're making enough money on goal scorer shots and target bets that you can eat that kind of risk. And sometimes just eating a risk is quite an easy solution to a betting problem. It's Occam's razor, but a manageable Occam's razor where you're like, okay, I'm probably going to lose like 2% equity, but I'm making 10% EV in the long run. And that's worth the risk for me just being able to move on. So the player XG model is now live. It is an automated tool. Um, it's an alpha, and that means that it is the first version. Having it automated is scary, because when I was doing it manually and static, of course I'm not monitoring the live prices because it's static, but at least I'm able to cast a manual eye over everything. And uh, if I saw something that looked out of place, I could manually remove it, and I did that all the time. And now, with an automated tool, I'm unable to do that. I mean, I will obviously take action anytime I see it, but it's out there running by itself. It's actually not be right now because it's been set up just to run on the English Premier League, the Championship, Serie A, La Liga, Liga Un, Liga Un and the one I didn't say, um, the Bundesliga. Um, and it's now the international break. Brilliant. Literally, we released this on the Sunday, and the Monday was the two-week international break, and we don't get to look at it again. <laughs> that was a complete accident. Didn't know that that was going to happen. Probably could have predicted it. Um, so it's now on a hiatus after one day of being live, which is equally equal parts funny and annoying. Um, but it, it, because it's running autonomously, um, we just got to sort of iron out a lot of the things. We are taking the market prices, adding some bias, looking at um, the exchange prices and figuring out if it's an errant trade. And we've got some logic in place with, around, you know, at a single errant trade outside of the market price um, might be indicative of a risk of the player not starting, but it also might just be an errant trade, as we had with Richarlison the other week, who started the game up front for Everton, who were favourites in the game, and a trade had gone for 12.5. Now, when that happens, that's for any time goal scorer, it can trip the model up by making us think that he's got an XG of 0.1 or 0.01 or something like that. And so what we have to do is say, nah, so far out of the market price, that's not a risk of him not starting. That's an errant trade. Someone's maybe tried to lay when they've backed or backed with a laid or something like that. But then if there are two trades at that level, then there is something going on that is information and we can override the safety net. So that's going on. And I have first goal scorer returned from... That, that, this is the beautiful part of estimating AGS um, is that I can now 
figure out FGS myself because we've got the live match XG and it's just AGS divided by match XG. Um, and we can do two plus and three plus, and this is what we're doing it for. We're doing it not for the AGS. The AGS is the starting point, so it's very difficult to exploit that. Where we're exploiting is away from the AGS over at FGS, two plus, three plus, score both halves, critically um, request the bets, your odds, that'll be in the future, stuff like that. Also in the future, very soon in the future, DDHH, neutral EV, um, sat down, confirmed the equation independently with a mathematician that we'd come up with the neutral odds. It's all good. We're all happy with the, the equation and that will run autonomously as well. Um, um, and it's really looking quite good, but there's a lot still to check. There's a lot still to add into it. And one of the big things to add into it is this factor of playing minutes, which I've touched on, but needs to really be drilled into this. Talking to Jeevan tonight re reminded me of really the importance of getting expected playing minutes into the player XG model. Um, and then we can start really sort of scraping around the request of bets and the your odds, because, you know, there'll be some prices out there that um, that are big, I promise you. Um, it's just no, literally nobody's looking at them through an automated um, technique. Well, we'll be the first. Uh, 7.45 kickoff, Brest versus Marseille. I'm having a look at Milik. And I make him, I've got my match XG and I've got my um, player XG out of that. Um, and FGS... In my maths, is around about 6.2. And I'm looking at the exchange. I'm looking at Smarkets. And it, there's nothing for Millic. It's only in a few minutes' time. About 5.1 to back and no lay. And the, well, I'm not going to get 6.2 matched. So I stick up £100 at 6.2. And within a few seconds, within two or three seconds, it was just getting eaten up. And I'm staring at this wondering... What is going on? Because one of three things will happen. Either um, there's already some liquidity there, or it will sit there and nobody will take it because it's just a bad price. Or there seems to be some sort of API in the background that's registered it, but it has to be automatic. And it's decided that it's going to see the other side of my price. Um, Jason, are you able to explain maybe what happened last night? Magic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we do have an API. We have about 150 API clients. Some are big, some are small, and you know they they all have various different algorithms. And some sit there silently and wait for a price to come along, and some are actively market making. So I would guess that one of the 150 API providers was sitting there waiting for the right price to come along. Would these be individual syndicates that have maybe sort of said, if anyone comes along and says Millic? 6.0 or higher will lay that is that what they would have done yeah i think so i mean the vast majority of them are single individuals i mean a few of them are companies and a few of them are part mm -hmm. of big companies but the vast majority mm -hmm. of them are, are are individuals with programming skills or work with programmers to build algorithms that they think uh they want to exploit on the exchange so it could also be a punter that's you know passionate about that match um sure. just like yeah. you are and waiting for the right price to come along i heard recently that uh, a company called Hansen was the largest, um, the largest market-making company is it in Europe or the world or something like that. Uh, are you aware of them? 
<laughs> yes, uh, that's part of Smarkets. They're they're a sister company to Smarkets. They're part of the same group, and um, and uh, yeah, I think it's hard to get good stats on this, but that that is one of uh, we do believe it's one of the world's largest market makers, if not the largest in the world. Why did a um, technology company looking to facilitate trades between different individuals decide to set up a sister company for market making? Yeah, it goes back to the founding story. So when I founded the company, I had no intention of doing any sort of trading whatsoever, even though I was a trader myself. Um, I just wanted to to take a transaction fee and be a neutral marketplace. But you know, when you're first starting, you have the chicken and egg problem, especially with marketplaces. And so we decided to build our first trading algorithm just to put prices up on the screen. And we kind of ran it as this um, like MVP just to kind of get transactions going. And for the first five, six, seven years of the company, we had the intention to hand it over to the quote unquote professionals. Uh, but I learned a few things. The few professionals that there are, you know, when you're a small company, uh, they have limited resource themselves and don't want to spend a lot of time with small startups. And and secondly, I found out that there aren't really that many market makers in the world. There are a few, but not not material market makers. The big professional bettors of the world are generally betting uh, directionally, doing directional bets rather than doing two-sided quotes across the site. So at some point along our journey over the last 12, 13 years, we decided um, not only is it um, a good way to make money, and it is a good way to make money, but it's it's quite necessary because you know, a lot of people will say that Betfair Exchange even is not very liquid in a lot of markets. You know, outside the tier one stuff on Betfair, it's very hard to get a bet on, uh, especially the lower lower leagues and lower markets and those kinds of things. And and so we uh, we we kind of backed into it by accident, and and we're quite. I think it gives us a huge strategic edge that we operate Hanson ourselves. I remember hearing Matthew Trenhale. Um, yeah, big sports compiler guy saying, um, you never, the, the problem with market making is that um, it's never efficient to be first to market. Even if you know your numbers, there is a cost to going live with your numbers first. You want to be the third person to go. So the first price goes up and it gets hit by the shops. And then the second price stabilizes, that gets hit by the shops. And by the time we're at the third price, that's roughly where you can start trading. So I I can only imagine, tell me if I'm wrong, but the complexity and the difficulty of trying to price up so many different markets yourselves, you must have been getting hit, I would imagine. All the time. We get hit all the time. Yeah. You make up with it with breadth. So you make up with it by having quoting thousands and thousands and thousands of markets, you know, 24 hours a day. And, and the, the breath helps you absorb the hits that you take. And, uh, yeah, we take hits, we get hit left, right and center all the time. But, uh, but on balance, we make, we make money trading. Um, how do you see things have gone recently by recently i mean um smarkets seem to have a I, I, i'm a very big fan of smarkets it is the number one exchange i use i, I barely log in to the other ones and um, mostly i've got to tell you because of the um the ux the user experience um little things that i think that you must have spent so much time on the fact that when a I, i'm watching a football match on the tv the referee blows his whistle by the time my eyes have gone from the tv screen to my computer screen, my balance is already updated, and that's a beautiful <laughs> touch. <laughs> yes, um, the must, that must have been a deliberate choice that you made early do- doors that you wanted to return people's money instantly. Yes, 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 of course, yeah. 
Um, there's so there's so much that goes on behind the scenes, and and just just making that happen is is quite complex. But but we're one of the few operators, and and I'm not just including exchanges. I'm talking about sports books, but mm-hmm. most sports books outsource their key bookmaking technology. We're one of the few operators that own the whole tech stack. So we have a lot more flexibility and speed trying to make you know small little user experience improvements like that happen. That means that you have to set all the events yourself every day, I assume, and then you have to Mm -hmm. marry that up with the odds compilation and the market Mm -hmm. making. And why do all of that in-house and not outsource it like everybody else? Well, the the original reason is because we didn't know any better. Uh, you know, I, I studied computer science, and you just think I'm a software guy. I used to trade this. Why 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 would this be so hard? And and just like you know, most startups kind of back into you know, they start with a crazy idea and do crazy things, and then a few survive. And so I would say the craziness is what led us to do it in the first instance. Now, now that we have done the craziness. Um, I do believe that we have an immense strategic advantage against our competitors uh, to be Mm -hmm. able to move faster, fix bugs faster, push out features faster. So if you look at the big tech, big tech, successful tech companies around the world, uh, they almost always have control of their tech stack. So it's quite unique to sports betting that a lot of operators uh, outsource it. And I think it's a long term strategic disadvantage. Yeah, sure. And I understand on a much smaller scale, but I understand just the difficulty in the fact that this is a 24-hour-a-day, 365-day-a-year industry. And Mm -hmm. things can go wrong all of the time. At Bookie Bashing Ourselves, we've got to set up what are the big games, what are the smaller games, what are the databases, who's players and shots and targets and all of that kind of thing. And it um, it can take up a lot more resource and uh, for the user, they just expect it to work. And mm. it only gets noticed when it doesn't work, I think. <laughs> we, yeah. We've we've had years of pain with that. And, and users that, I'm not sure how long you've been with us, but if you were with us six, seven, eight years ago, I, the, the site used to crash every day, every Saturday at 2.55 and 3 o'clock, uh, you know, when all the Saturday football matches kicked off. So we've gone through a lot of that pain ourselves. But, you know, we have a pretty advanced, matured, platform right now and touch wood like mm-hmm. we still have issues from time to time but they're they're very few and far between so we're you know it it came after a lot of sweat and hard work uh from the team to to get us to the point where things are pretty stable sure sure so um sb sbk the sports book was launched is it a couple of years ago through 2019 was, yeah was something right? like that yep yeah and um trying to sort of deliver low margin sports products that that others don't and now we hit 2022 um and um is the sports book and the exchange still sort of similar priorities for you are you looking to push one more than the other um you say that things are stable now but i can't believe for one second that that doesn't mean that there isn't a list of projects sitting on your desk at this moment oh of course of course no you got to keep pushing the state of the art but uh no Mm -hmm. i definitely definitely our focus is sbk Uh, the main reason Mm -hmm. is at least in the uk market the addressable size is about 10 times bigger than the exchange market and so mm-hmm. we want to have a crack at the sort of the the everyday punter, you know, the twenty dollar, twenty pound rather, you know, Saturday punter. We want to have a crack at that at that market, delivering basically amazing exchange prices in a in a bookmaker experience. 
Um, the really interesting thing that we did, I think, is that we built SBK to sit directly on top of the exchange. So the better the sportsbook gets, the better the exchange mm-hmm. gets and vice versa. So it's, so even though we spend 80%, give or take, of our effort on building the sportsbook, it's still built on top of this markets exchange platform. So it's not like one gets lost in the dust. So this is adding sort of you're looking at recreational punters, the sort of lower stakes Saturday afternoon sat in the pub. They want maybe an accumulator or a lucky 15 on the horses. It's sort of maybe looking down that direction. Absolutely. It's it's your habitual Ladbrokes, William Hill, Coral, you know, that that, that paddy powered punter that we're trying to go after. Why would they be more attractive to you than the exchange punters? Why would we care more about them? Sure. The, the the market's ten times bigger. So the the market in the, mm. the sports betting market's worth two billion pounds per year in the UK, and and uh, we have one percent market share right now, and we want to go after the other ninety nine percent. And most of that is in the sports book uh, sphere, and and about ten percent of the the of the UK market is exchanged. So we thought mm. uh, let's let's have a crack at uh, at the casual punter. That's amazing, ten percent. Um, as as someone that's done gambling as long as myself, and um, I find it incredible that um, people will settle for a lower price. It's almost like knowing that a can of Coke is fifty p in the local newsagent, and it's a pound in Tesco's. But you don't care; you just still go and spend a pound down in Tesco's, and you can sort of stand back and go, "Really, you could have got two cans of Coke," you know. Um, is the I American market? Sorry, sorry. Go on. I, I, just to interrupt there, I think that's part of it, uh, convenience. Mm-hmm. But I also think exchanges. There's two very complex things with the exchange. One is that you have this idea of a transaction fee, and you know, from the from mm-hmm. the sports book bookmaking world, that's kind of a foreign concept. And the second thing, and, and it's also hard to calculate that fee. Saying it's two percent of winnings is like, how do you you know that kind of does your head in. The second thing is, um, and we're guilty of this ourselves, is that the UK-facing exchanges have incredibly complex interfaces. Uh, it's so complex that if you're a generically smart person that knows nothing about sports betting, you can't look at it and understand anything about it. And this is d- definitely something that's been on our, our roadmap to fix. But I think you know, only if you're sort of go that extra mile to kind of understand the interface do you want to deal with an exchange. So I, I, to me, I think exchanges are incredibly complex. Uh, at least the way that they're presented, they're very complex. And, and the industry and including markets has not done a good enough job simplifying that interface. Now, instead of dumbing, quote unquote, dumbing down the exchange, which BetDAC and Betfair have both experimented with sort of, quote unquote, dumbed mm-hmm. down um, interfaces, I think BetDAC a little bit more than Betfair. It never caught on. And I think because you kind of like, you know, if the product doesn't stand for something, it kind of gets lost in the middle. And if it's an exchange that gets dumbed down, like the casual punter doesn't like it and the advanced punter doesn't like it, nobody's happy. So that's also part of the reason we want to push SBK, where you get 90, 95% of the benefit of the exchange, but you don't have to learn a new a new product. So I, I think that as exchange, as interfaces evolve, like the percent that flows through an exchange will the market share of an exchange will go up. But I think you need something like SBK to kind of get that done. 
Yeah, sure. Although I think you're doing yourself a disservice that um, that the exchanges are the 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 display is um, complicated. Uh, complicated to me is going to William Hill's site, and if I simply want to scroll to go to a football market, I have to get past Rainbow Riches, Roulette, Blackjack. Um, <laughs> you do and, have Betfair Exchange too. There's a giant pink roulette wheel when you log into Betfair Exchange. Yeah, right. Whereas um, the, the, the two user, display, user displays, I think, that nailed it were Bet365. There's just nothing there other than the minimum amount of information that you need when you go to Bet365 and to a yeah. certain extent, Smarkets as well. Yes. I do agree Bet365 has done a nice job. I, I would say that they, they still have some critical flaws. Like, for example, it's, it, I think you can search now, but they used to make it very hard to search. Um, there's some quirks to that site, but I, I do agree that Bet365 has generally yeah. done a good job with the, uh, yeah. the user experience. Although, I, yeah, I, I have to say literally an hour ago, I tried to search for Sporting Lisbon at Smarkets and I typed in Lisbon and nothing came up and I realized it's Sporting CP. So, it, But it's a difficult one. It's very, very difficult to sort of get all of these different fuzzy logic name mismatches to come up. Um, well, that, that is something we should fix. And uh, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Um, the um, the American market opens up well has been opening up slowly um, uh, in time. I just wondered, and I have no no reason to believe why this may be true, but I was just thinking about your brand, your product, and everything like that. I wondered if you were maybe using a lot of what you've been doing in the UK as a test ground, really to attack you know a market that I, I don't know what the numbers are, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was ten, twenty, thirty times larger. Um, when it opens up in America than it is in the UK. Um, would there be an element of that? Or um, is the UK still a sort of focal product of yours? Yeah, no, there's an element of that. But I mean, I founded the company in the UK. I founded the company in London um, mm -hmm. with no intention of going to, you know, no realistic expectation of the American market opening up. That was just purely opportunistic and uh, luck that, that America opened up. Um it is true that the American market is going to be massive, but the, the British market's massive. I mean, two billion pound market is not a tiny market. And uh, uh, we're, we're definitely, we want to do both. We, we want to be a meaningful player in, in both markets. And, uh, and that's what we're setting out to do. Awesome stuff. Awesome. I mean, I've, I want to have half an eye over there as well. I've just got to learn a little bit more about where the edges exist in baseball, basketball, American football, mm. and so forth and so on. At least there's, uh, we, we've always got golf that we both share with each <laughs> other. So um, something's happened recently. Um, another thing that made me wonder if you if you had to have half an eye on what's going on in the UK with the consultations and the changes in legislation and maybe if it, I mean, you can't be blind to it. And I, I wonder if you think that, that might, those changes might have a tangible effect on the sustainability of our business going forward. Do you, I mean, I know there's not much we can all do about it. We kind of can write to our MPs and then sit back and wait and see what happens. But do you have any sort of um, concerns about the, the direction that we're going in the UK? Uh, that's a, I mean, it's a complicated question to, to answer because there's a, there's a lot to it. But in general, I'm optimistic that the UK is trying to do the right thing, trying to find the balance between it being taxed fair to vulnerable persons who are participating and, and you know, open enterprise. Um, I think, you know, it's impossible to always strike the right balance between regulation and, and laissez-faire um, industry. But I... I, I do believe that the UK at least is trying to do the right thing to 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 make things better, um, not necessarily for the operator, but to make things quote unquote fairer for the user. Um, 
that's a it's complicated. It's it's like where do you draw the mm-hmm. line? Where is it the operator's responsibility? Where is the player's responsibility? Uh, so I don't envy what they're trying to do, but I do think that I I want to believe that they're doing it in good faith, and I support good faith efforts to make the industry better. Uh, I heard a quote of yours that you said uh, sports betting is nothing but a math equation. It's nothing more than that, and it's nothing less than that. And I quite liked that. It's the same mm. math equation that we have in insurance, for example. Um, and there is a lot of muddying of the water with problem gambling, which obviously has its own issues that need to be solved. But when you do break it down, it's all we're doing is we're playing around with math equations, aren't we? Yeah, I appreciate that you like that quote. Nobody, very few people like that quote. I mean, very few people get the the point of that, which is that inherently sports betting is is nothing more than a number numbers, you know. And people want to mm-hmm. attach all this amorality uh, to the industry, and and it's really the application of the industry. It's the application of the math equation and the pricing of the math equation that I think is where the amorality comes from, not the intrinsic mm-hmm. act of placing a bet. And that's a subtlety that I think is not very not very well appreciated or understood in in the market. Yeah. Um... I would be amiss not to bring up, we've had um, a bookie bashing what we are. We are advantage players value betters. Essentially, I understand the point of arbitrage. I just find it a bit boring. Um, I want to win a little bit more and I don't mind losing. I've never mind losing. I think a lot of sports bettors can lose and not have a problem here. Um, I'm sure you dislike how much more uh, legislation is coming through in terms of um, you know, your customer source of wealth you'd rather not be entangled in this and you'd rather be entangled in Python 2 versus Python um, and making your user experience even better than it is. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, uh, a, a couple of, um, at, least, at least two, and I think it's maybe a little bit more of um, the members from Bookie Bash and said, um, uh, these are guys who, you know, we might be, um, we might be gambling 500,000 pounds a day, but all in little 50, 100, 200 pound chunks. And then you throw it all up in the air and variance and volatility takes care of it all. But Evie kind of suggests the math equation says that we're more on the right side of the coin than we are on the um, wrong side of the coin. And um, with large deposits and the changes of legislation, there's been a few requests, not obviously not just from markets, but all operators um, maybe saying, um, can you prove where your income has come from. And um, playing on the exchange, um, something that's been requested is um, if you're playing quite high and you're doing a lot of stakes, um, uh, are you a professional punter? Um, Yes, we are a professional punter. And the feedback has been from the exchanges, please, can you show the other side of your arbitrage bets? To which we would say there is a a lot of advantage players out there who are not match betters who are not arbitrage players but at the same time are playing uh placing you know a significant amount of bets relative to their income and unfortunately advantage play value betting isn't um seen as a um uh, a source of income and therefore a deposit cap is put straight on which is relative complete to the salary that the person is on um it's something i wanted to highlight to you it doesn't seem it doesn't seem right, and I'm absolutely sure that it's not the operator's um, desire to be in this position. But also, it's a, a conversation that I wanted at least to be started out loud, so that we can move to the next step and see if we can improve the status quo. Yeah. So there, there's basically two huge issues at play here. One is anti-money laundering. Mm-hmm. 
uh, source of funds, mm-hmm. and one is safer gambling. So let's let's take them separately. So anti-money laundering is basically um, a short way of saying that we need to make sure that the money that you're using in our system is legitimate. Like you paid taxes on it. It was not from a proceed of crime. You didn't fraud it, defraud anybody from it. And it's like bonafide your money and it's, it's clean money. That's complicated. That's, you know, that's, that's something that all industries are grappling with, but for, for various reasons, gambling gets called out a lot on it. The UKGC is all over gambling companies for, for policing that. And so one of the hard things with match betting and our uh, advantage betting is, um, you know, s- some people do this full time and they don't have normal employ- yeah. employment. They, they advantage bet uh, full time. And we're very sympathetic to that because that, that we believe that, you know, it's a positive EV uh, business. Everybody makes money except the bookmaker, which is good. And, uh, and it's good. Um, so to that point, I think you touched on it. We look for people to show the other side of the bet to show that, that you are indeed generating money from this. And then I believe that if you show the right proof, we can accept that as, as proof of the money. The advantage betters who are letting the risk fly, um, I think that's what, you know, naked risk or taking, you know, uh, unhedged positions. Mm-hmm. Like we need to see your P&L to support, uh, you know, in place of an income to show that you are actually generating um, profits. You know, a lot of betters, say they're professional betters and aren't showing uh, positive EVs. And so you have to be very mindful of either um, you have the salary to support this or we have to know where the money's coming from to fund the losses. So whether that's from inheritance um, or, Mm -hmm. you know, you sold a business or, or whatever the case may be, what we need to see is that you have the cash uh, clean money to support the losses uh, that we see on our side. That's um, oh, that sounds like a, a reasonable yeah. thing to ask for. Yeah. So, so if I yeah, say, the, okay, I've made ten thousand pounds from Betfair in the last year, and show that to you, that that's a reasonable explanation there. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it depends on the scale of your betting on markets, but you know, uh, scale appropriate mm-hmm. that would that would that would help uh, help us get comfortable. And then on the safer gambling, what we're trying to do is uh, try to make sure that we try to estimate what we think your disposable income is. Um, And uh, we have some metric that says we think that a reasonable person can lose up to X percent of their disposable income. So we need proof that your your income or the money coming in um, can support the negative losses on, on gambling to make sure that you don't get in over your head. So that's why there's basically mm-hmm. the con- the confluence of those two mm-hmm. issues are coming to head. I think the UK GC is trying to up their game probably in advance of, you know, the, uh, the consultation that's going on in parliament. Yeah. Um, but also, you know, they're trying to play their role, um, mm-hmm. uh, pushing the industry forward. So it's just kind of all come mm-hmm. to head at the same time. And the UKGC is really pushing us on AML and safer gambling at the same time. I mean, I, I have sympathy for you. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's your position to have to police this. I, 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 there should be some yeah. sort of intermediary escrow or ombudsman that was doing it for you. Yes. In terms of me, um, just this morning, my buddy um, that I went to university with, I've known him 25 years, but he's my runner. I sent him to a shop to place a, a lucky 15 and we share 
the profit and loss of these lucky 15s, but he's the only one in the shop that um, that puts it on at Cheltenham. And um, if he wins £10,000 on that lucky 15, he'll come to me and give me £5,000 in cash. But I have literally no way of showing you nor any other operator that I came into that cash legitimately. And so there is still plenty of scope for improvement to not, you know, the, the whole idea of this is to either capture proceedings of crime or problem gamblers. And there's a, there's quite a few people out there that are dealing with sums of cash that are in neither category. So, so that's an interesting um, problem. But, sorry, but what I would say is that you have a business relationship with this guy and, mm. you know, the proper way to do that would be to paper it, I, I guess, is off the top of my head. But, you know, cash is mm-hmm. obviously one of the, stickiest things to deal with because there's there's no trace of it you know did you get it selling drugs did you find it you know in the couch cushion or or you know did you get it with your mate that's betting super 15 and and winning the bets so mm-hmm. you could you could paper i guess um you could have a contract with your friend saying this is the terms of the deal and this is what i'm going to pay you for this and um that could be one way to handle that but i i agree it's 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 a side effect of moving to a digital economy yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've, I used to play a lot of poker and I've got myself into some hot water taking the cash from the poker events um, into mm. the bank and then trying to prove where that came from. So, look, I didn't want to keep you for longer than half an hour, but there was one more concept I've heard you talk about that I find absolutely fascinating. And so I just wanted your thoughts on it. And that you said from the point of your business in market making and in SBK, something called order flow was the number one priority um, would you be able to explain order flow to me? Yeah, order flow basically just means so. So, in in traditional trading, the way you make money in a traditional financial market is you have something called an edge, which means you know I, I'm sure a lot of your investors know or your listeners know what edge means. But for those of you that don't know, it's it's some advantage that you have over the market to give you confidence that you think the market is mispricing something so that when you buy or sell it, you're buying value or selling value. Now, that isn't the case in sports betting because the hardest thing to get uh, access to is, is counterparties. You know, If I'm leading hedge fund XYZ or, or best better in the world number four, I can't just sign up to ladbrokes.com and go place 100,000 pounds of bets uh, in the next 24 hours. So all the bookies, uh, short of like a few APIs for exchanges, all the bookies are basically closed gardens that you can't really play in. And so when I say order flow is the number one thing we're trying to get after, it's this idea that uh, being part of that transaction in any form is the game in sports betting. You know, getting retail order flow or you know order flow is another way of saying the action of getting the action of normal betters onto your site is the hard part like monetizing it trading it is relatively easy once you kind of build up the uh the core platform but just getting the money onto your platform is the challenge and that's what i meant by that Oh, interesting. I, I had completely come at it that from a different angle that I thought that order flow was maybe there is a series of transactions for a price and you want to be the person that's either first or having the best part of that slice of the pie. I got it wrong. Order flow no, for what you it, what is, it means that, is that, that you people have, putting, yeah. It means that Sorry, you're part of the transaction and you have optionality. So, mm-hmm. you know, because we're an exchange and we also trade ourselves, you know, we have the option to 
hedge our bet, not take the bet, all these kinds of things. And so uh, if we're able to see that bet first in the sports book and decide whether it should go on the exchange or not, that gives us a huge advantage that other operators uh, don't have. Sure. And that could hopefully be why SBK can, can grow as a sports book as a low margin product, right? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Although, um, you know, Jason, we, we make about one to 2%, yeah. uh, just to close out the margin, we make about one to 2% mm. margin. And in, you know, compared to everybody else, it's nothing. But to me, it's still pretty high margin because oh. I used to come from the stock trading world and, you know, pennies matter in stock trading. And, and you know, to, to think you're making 100 basis points every time you take a bet still to me is, is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, um, it was 15% not that long ago. It's still 7.5% <laughs> um, uh, like at the best at most places. So 1% is just, it seems, light years away from where yeah. we are right now. So it's a, it's a fantastic Madness. concept. And even even stupid things in the, um, in the um, insurance industry, such as, you know, my mom puts £10 a month into an, a mobile phone insurance um, policy, <laughs> yeah. and then after ten years, she tries to claim on it, and they won't because of something that she didn't do right through the whole process. You know, it just seems yeah. like madness. The whole, um, the whole thing's a one to two percent. Um, I love it, and also just SBK's numbers are a really good way of having a look at on odds checker. If you're incredibly mm. lazy and don't want to price up something yourselves, just using SBK's pr price with no markup seems to be a, a cheat's way of being able to do that. So it's very useful um, in that context. Jason, thank you for joining me for 30 minutes this afternoon. I know you're a busy man. We've got Cheltenham tomorrow as well. So um, uh, taking the time out to talk to the Bashcast was, is very much appreciated. Um, really happy to join you and thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, no, yep. not a problem. Just one request before you go. If you can talk to your team, um, uh, shots on target uh, in football games, if that could be added as a market, I would be just indebted to you forever. I am. Uh, I don't know how much liquidity is out there for it. I don't know um, how much um, desire or punter requests there are, but um, it seems to me to be something that the bookmakers themselves are starting to push. And because of that, the money must be coming in from the punters. I'd love to see shots on target in uh, premiership football games at Smarkets. I will I will check that out. It's funny you mentioned that though, because I remember a debate, I want to say like a year or two ago, where BBC had different numbers than Sky Sports, for example. So I think that's part of the issue oh, yeah, of the market yeah. is that there's not an official source for shots on target. Um, do you know? Yeah, one? and you get a lot of even well, I know the bookmakers run of Opta. Uh, we've tried right. to um, use Opta ourselves. Uh, they're prohibitively too expensive for a company the size of bookie bashing to be able to source the data from them. But what, one thing I will agree with you there is that uh, I, you go on Twitter and you see a punter's lost a bet and he's showing a video to Skybet support customer services of what he considers to be a shot on target. Opta have said that it isn't. Skybet are caught in the middle. And I don't blame you for not wanting to have the hassle of being able to be stuck there as an intermediary yeah. between two subjective um, definitions of the same thing. So, yeah. But just, just because it's hard doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. So I'll, I'll talk to my team sure. and uh, see what we can do. So it wouldn't take Hercule Poirot to figure out that that was recorded before Cheltenham. I'd actually just released a, the previous podcast the, the day before I, or two days before I spoke to Jason. So I, I couldn't really do overload of the Bashcast. I had to sit on it for a little bit of time. A um, couple of things. One, something went wrong with the recording um, and our voices got split. And I tr I've had to stitch them back together, which is terribly time consuming. 
And if anything sounded a little bit weird and slightly off, like a second off or whatever, then that's why. And secondly, um, there was some unfortunate timing in that podcast where um, Jason, who was an extremely um, kind to give up his time to come and talk to us, because he's a very busy man, um, he said he was quite proud of of the fact that markets um, used to have a little bit of downtime and um, n- now they don't, now that they, they have, uh, you know, they're, they're usually up all of the time. Um, and then the following Tuesday, um, the day after the podcast was written, was the first day of Cheltenham. And markets went down at 9.30 in the morning. And this is kind of funny to talk about for me because markets went down at 9.30 in the morning and it affected me. It affected my ability to bet on markets on the first day. But then bookie bashing went down at 9.45 in the morning, almost at exactly the same time. And that puts me in a strange position where it's very difficult for me to be critical or sympathetic Um well, it's very easy for me to be sympathetic, but that might sound a little bit odd or flippant, um, like an obvious thing. So I'm trying to be pragmatic in my honest assessment of what had happened at Smarkets. And here's here's what I hope you believe is my genuine assessment. And we'll, we'll park the issues we had at Bucky Bashing for a second. Um, I have almost all of my betting balance, either... In other people's hands, like my runners, or a safe that no one will ever, ever get into. So don't come around here with your guns and your knives and your pea shooters. Um, or in markets. And I tried to log on on Tuesday morning to play some bets. And I couldn't do it. Um, the two-factor authentication wasn't working, wasn't allowing me in. Um, and I, then I did get in, but I couldn't place any bets. Like, you would try and place a bet and it would just not be accepted. There was something significantly wrong. Um, And all I hope is you can trust me when I say... um, My honest, genuine appraisal of the situation was, look, they don't want to be down. I don't know what's going wrong. Something has gone wrong. It is... A minor inconvenience for me, but I'm almost more sympathetic for the plight that they're having than I am annoyed at the position that I'm in that I can't do what I'm going to do. There's a lot worse things going around the world just now. Now, I'll tell you this. If it was an arbitrage better or a match better or someone that needed to hedge, I'd be a lot more irritated than someone that just bets one side of things, right? But because I'm only betting one side of things, for me, that that... I'm not even thinking, well, I'm not going to have the bet that will have won. Um, I'm thinking, well, well, okay, so I can't bet on it. Whatever, it might lose. And I've saved myself some money. I didn't actually even look at the results of the things I was trying to bet on once I realized that I couldn't bet. So I'm not even in a position to tell you I would have been up or I would have been down because it it doesn't matter. What I felt sorry for was smarkers. They don't want to be in that position. They don't want to be in a position where, on as well, it's the time, it's the it's the timing of it as well, where... They want everyone to go over and um, use them. And right at the critical moment, when they've been stable for so long, they went down. Jason Trost released a 
an update. He said, um, today really hurt. We screwed up and I'm sorry to all affected markets and SPK customers. Everything's now stable and we are being extra vigilant to ensure that we don't run into similar issues moving forward. And um, he's then got a further longer statement. And he says, this morning we suffered technical issues on our platform and unfortunately were unable to resolve the problems in a timely manner. This led to an extended period of instability that disrupted customer activity. We would like to unreserve Lidley apologize for the interruption cause. We understand that apologies can feel hollow in circumstances like this. Cheltenham is our busiest week of the year and one that we always plan for and look forward to. This year, we have let our customers down and we're very sorry for that. We know that downtime, no matter whether it's seconds or hours long, is completely unacceptable. The root cause of this issue was an influx of new users that was much larger than expected. Please know that our team is working extremely hard to ensure that the rest of Cheltenham and beyond goes smoothly. Once again, thank you so much for your patience today. And then the replies are... Typically, loads of people saying they're closing their account and wanting free bets. Now, that's a great and honest answer from Jason Trust. And I think he wins over a lot of people with his honesty there. So let's move on to bookie bashing. That happened at about 9.30 on Tuesday morning to Smarkets. And then at 9.45 a.m., Bookie bashing started running into trouble. We started finding that pages were hanging. If you were actually in at 9.45, you could navigate around and access, but I think you had to have been in by that point. People who weren't in couldn't get in. And it got worse and worse and worse till about 10 o'clock. And at 10 o'clock, everything just collapsed and you were getting like a 401 error, cannot connect to bookie bashing. And that was at 10 o'clock in the morning on Tuesday. And I promise you this, we have a team of uh, one, two, three, four, five. Well, we've got a team of 11, but I think at any one time there was like six people on Tuesday morning working. And we're all jumping straight on this. But there's an element of we're actually all locked out as well. So we don't know what's going on. We can't access the admin consoles. We can't access anything. And naturally being Cheltenham morning... People would like to access bookie bashing, and they can't. And for that, we were genuinely sorry. For a period of time, we could not actually communicate, A, what was going on, what was going wrong, or B, when it was going to be fixed. Um, for the most part, me and Duncan are not IT professionals and do not understand... Uh, what is being said between the IT guys. So there were, we can see they're talking to each other, they're talking about stuff. I do not understand the words that I'm reading. All I know is that they're searching for a root cause and then trying to find a um, a way of fixing the root cause. And there was all kinds of talks about secondary servers, emergency servers, backup servers, things like that. Here's a weird thing. Tuesday morning, 10 o'clock last year, Cheltenham, we also went down then as well. Um, and we actually came back online last year one minute into the first race. And we had completely disrupted everybody's morning um, that had come to use bookie bashing. And um, that week last year coincided with our largest net um, reduction in members. 
And in a 24-hour period, 1.4 million um, presumably bots try to access and log on to the front page of Bucky Bashing. And that is a denial of service attack. It's an obvious one because of the scale of it. It's not like 1.4 million people are sitting there trying to access boogiebashing.net at any one particular time. That was a deliberate um, attempt by an entity to disrupt um, the ability of anybody to access Bucky Bashing. And it disrupted us as a, cost, as a company. It had a tangible economic effect, a negative one. Right. Um, it took a very, very long time, actually, last year to recover the member numbers from that point. Um, it was the worst week ever. It was the worst month ever. So on and so on. And, and of course, I, I, I absolutely understand. I mean, if I go and pay for something and then cannot access it, I will feel aggrieved the same way. Now, this year, I've asked the IT guys. Well, by the way, we came back up a couple of minutes after the first race. So it was identical downtime to last year. So I'm like, well, this is a denial of service attack, right? Because it's exactly the same time period. Um, and it's very easy for us if it's a denial of service attack because at least we can turn around and go, we didn't do anything wrong, we've been attacked. Uh, the honest reply from the IT guys was at the time and still is today, they do not know. They cannot say for sure if it was a denial of service attack or if it was more people logging onto the tracker at the same time than we've ever seen before and we just had never seen it and we weren't prepared for that size. And um, we have an IT st skeleton staff of two people at Bucky Bashing. Um, it's not a huge team. And all of our focus actually wasn't on figuring out who or what was to blame because we knew what was to blame. It was too many people visiting the site and then things about spawning children that I didn't necessarily understand. And it was causing the site to fall over. Was it malicious or was it just overload that was unexpected? At the time, we didn't know. What we did know is it wasn't quite the 1.4 million. It was smaller than it was last year. And what we know is that it's possible that it could have been legitimate and it's possible it could have been malicious. And it didn't actually matter whether it was legitimate or malicious, because both kind of have the same IT issue. And what you can do is you can sit down for an hour and a half and figure out, is this malicious or is this legitimate? Or you can sit down for an hour and a half and try and fix the problem and get the site back online and put a secondary server and a third server back in place. And we chose the second option, right? We chose the option where we're just trying to get the site back online. And we lost all of the Tuesday and we had refund requests and understandably and we had one particular guy shouting very very loudly and using the word joke over and over again and then i looked him up and i couldn't find his name in the registered users list so i don't know if he was legitimate or not or if he was just jumping on the bandwagon but anyway we go back to this we're terribly sorry it happened I, I'm, now this puts me in a difficult position because I don't want anyone to think, well, I'm just saying this because I think Trost sounded good when he said it. This is, I think we said it at the time. I was trying to communicate every 30 minutes, every hour uh, on various different platforms about what was going on and we didn't know what was going on. All we knew was that the site couldn't cope with the amount of visitors, malicious or legitimate. And now it's a week later and guess what? We don't have that information just now either. We haven't looked at it. It's kind of a lot of it's been lost, you know, and so we're left in a position where we can't say so. And I'd love to tell you it was malicious, 
because that just means that it wasn't our fault and maybe we garner some sympathy. And I'd actually like to tell you it was legitimate as well because at least then you know and you know that we put things in place. And simply, I've asked IT, IT don't know, and if IT don't know, I definitely don't know. So we don't know, but that Tuesday was nothing but putting emergency backup options in place. Weirdly, nothing happened on the Wednesday. And then on the Thursday, we went down, but we went down for like 20 seconds. Out of nowhere as well. And we immediately fired up the backup service and we were back online and everything like that. And we haven't had to use them since. And touch wood, we won't have to use them again. What I understand that the IT have done... I read the technical stuff. There was something about spawning a number of children and they decided that they were going to multiply that spawning by like loads more and that should make sure that the particular issue with that bit of code would go away. And it sounded like a kind of thing that would fix it. But honestly, if I'm butchering this explanation, it's because I'm not the IT professional. I just promise you all attention from the guys who are really good at it and know a lot more than me, was on the issue. And yeah, we hope that it doesn't come back again. So I hope, look, I'll tell you this. I'm not going to lie. We got a lot of bad messages from people that were very annoyed. We actually got a load of good messages as well. We did. We genuinely did. Some people emailed in going, look, I know you guys were down today. I just want to say... I appreciate everything you do. Things like this happen, um, but uh, the, the content's still great. And do you know what? Under high stress and pressure situations, having feedback like that actually does mean a lot. If that person thought, I'm going to email in and make them feel a little bit better and less stressed, he was right. He did. That was shared around. It was like, okay, you know, amongst the people that are annoyed, I think more people are just on our side and content and hoping that we can fix it. And I was very much the same with Smarket. It's like, look, it was it was it was a thing that happened. There are certainly a lot worse things going on around the world just now than issues such as I can't log into my balance and bet on the first couple of races at Cheltenham. Right? There really are. And so whilst it's unfortunate that it happens, nobody wanted it to happen. And I trust the clever people both at Smarket and around me at Bookie Bashing to have mitigated, probably not completely got rid of, but mitigated the risk of it happening again. Hopefully, by the time we get to the next Bashcast, I'll have counted up how I actually did at Cheltenham, and then I can tell you. Maybe I broke even. I reckon I am about broke even, but we'll never, you never know. There might be a big lucky 15 in there that I haven't noticed. Whatever it is that you are betting on, this international friendly week. Do make sure it's value. This is Tom, signing out.